Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and Miguel Delaney of the Independent. More Premier League managers have lost their jobs this season than in the whole of last season. Confirmation that football is indeed a rough business. Spurs stole a march by recruiting Antonio Conte. Villa and Norwich were ruthlessly unsentimental in dispensing with Dean Smith and Daniel Farker. Change, it seems, is everywhere, except at Manchester United, the club which needs it the most. That's unsustainable, isn't it, Miguel? It should be, and yet we've been at this point a few times now. I mean, I think that the I've seen the argument made a few times, but <laughs> if Solskjaer was at Chelsea, or maybe not even Chelsea, there would have been multiple points at this stage where he would have been moved on. Uh, but whereas previously he was in this sort of cycle where just to the point where it looked like a, a situation was unsustainable to get a win, um, uh, only for the go-round again, it does feel something is broken there now. And the United have just... I mean, you can see it in the reaction of some of the players. You can see it in the response to the players, the way they play, the chemistry of the team right now. It does feel like something fundamentally is wrong with the team. Even if Solskjaer had been a success or a top manager, which I don't, obviously I don't think he is, it has the feeling that it's three years now and the whole thing has kind of run its course, that they almost just need a change for that reason. I do think at this point, the much-criticised Old Trafford hierarchy is aware of this, but the problem is where you go next, in that if they ideally, if someone's going to replace Solskjaer for them, they want you know, their ideal alternative. So someone like, say, Maurizio Pochettino or even Brendan Rodgers or Eric Ten Hag. But it's very difficult to do those sort of deals mid-season now, especially when they involve top clubs. And, but, but even if they were to go for an interim, there aren't too many viable options there. Now, the, the one thing that should be said about that, I mean, I don't think anyone would have said Solskjaer was a viable option in December 2018 when he replaced Jose Mourinho. But for whatever you think about how that panned out after they appointed him, that did initially work out quite well. So there can be... I mean, an interim is quite a strange job in that regard. But even still, it doesn't feel like there's anything immediate there or immediately possible. So we're in this kind of strange... I think Barney Renee referred to it on Saturday as a zombie situation where the hope is that Solskjaer just steadies things enough to get to the end of the season, keep top four, maybe go on a Champions League one. I mean, it's one of the weird things about the modern Champions League that it's not impossible that Solskjaer goes and wins it this season. 
but, <laughs> but but as it is, they're just hoping to kind of yeah to 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 keep things just about steady enough. Although almost it's almost like every week brings another low, and I suppose that that's where it has to get to where it really is. It, it really goes past the point of anything you can justify. But for the moment, it kind of staggers on, and the the plan is very much that Solchar's in charge for Watford. But who knows? I suppose I mean, given the international break as we've seen in the past, can do can have an effect on clubs, especially when there's this spirited change around the Premier League. But for the moment, it looks like it's going to stay. Yeah, I suppose. I think it's three of the last six Champions League winners have, have appointed their managers mid-season. Uh, but John, I suppose the you know the ultimate question on this is United are run by people who look at profit and loss. They're interested in the balance sheet. The balance sheet is reflected by qualification for the Champions League. Is more decision or indecision? likely to cost Manchester United a top four place? Well, I think it could do. I, I, I do agree with you to a point. The balance sheet is the most important thing for, for, for Man United. But somewhere along the line, someone has got into their heads about the romance and the and the fairy tale appointment of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, club legend, coming back and being a phenomenal success despite only having previously managed at Mulder and Cardiff, where he wasn't a success at all. And... Uh, I just think that, that he's a lovely bloke. He's got so many former player pundits on his side, refusing <laughs> to sort of co- kind of condemn him. They'll condemn every other aspect of the football club and the squad and the team, but they won't have a go at him. And it's it feels like that in a way. With the, and in fairness, it feels like that they're reflecting the fans as well in in the stadium, because this is a long way short, isn't it? Of you don't know what you're doing, which was chanted at Nuno which, let's be honest, was probably a big bearing on, on Daniel Levy's decision to to make that change, along with the fact that he realised that Antonio Conte would be up for the job. So uh, as close a rebellion as we've had has been the fans chanting for Donny van der Beek. You know, it's really th- th- that shows their frustration and them getting fed up with it. And the cries for van der Beek were, were just obvious during the game. And that almost undermines the manager in, in many ways. But it's a long way short of calling for the manager's head. They still boo at half time rather than chant, you know, Solskjaer must go. They're off and away before the end of the the end of the game, which I think always is such a telling sign. But the fans are fed up, clearly, even whether they don't want to sort of which is very admirable, they don't want to the match going fan, you know, social media is something else, but basically they don't want to have a go at, at Solskjaer because of their love and affection for the guy. But I think when do they act? I think they act when they are almost established in the bottom half of the table and when it becomes that bad or they could miss out on Champions League qualification for the knockout stages or indeed get knocked out of the Champions League and they bring in someone as an interim, someone as a caretaker until they get the man they want to give them a shot in the arm for the rest of the season. But Genuinely, I think that they, they are desperate for it to work with Solskjaer. They've backed him to the hilt, new contract, new players in the summer. That's not a club of the mind to sack the manager. It's not. And in many ways, we should be applauding that and it should be admirable. But actually, when it's Manchester United, you expect them to live by different rules, and different expectations. It's just not working with Solskjaer. And I just, this is, feels like death by a thousand cuts for Solskjaer. And you actually feel a bit sorry for him. And that's how bad it's got. You actually feel pity for him, which is a bit sad. 
Yeah, there's a real distorted logic, isn't there, in saying, well, well, United can't replace him because of previous failures with high-profile managers like Van Gaal or Mourinho. What about the structure of the club, Migs? You know, John Murta is has got a development background, but really very little clout. Would it be the best alternative to get someone like Ralph Ranick in to hold the fort as head coach before he could then take up responsibilities as a true director of football? Well, that's what I was told at the weekend, that basically Ranick is interested in coming as an interim, but the catch to that is he would want a football role afterwards. And the way Ranick works, though, and the sort of figure he is, and the sort of club the modern Manchester United are, they might be a bit resistant to the extent of control he wants, which, of course, feeds into the kind of wider debate about the sort of manager they want and all that. And I, 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 I was thinking about this a lot over the weekend, wrote with such a bit this morning. That could have been a real juncture moment in the modern history of Manchester United. Basically, as it came to the end of Mourinho's time in charge in autumn, winter 2018, there were briefings and there was a real push that they were finally going to get in the director of football. Obviously, this has been such a massive discussion since Ferguson left. Then Mourinho goes, and his resistance to the director of football had been cited by a few people about that. Mourinho goes, they bring in Solskjaer, there's immediately a good run. Everyone gets swept away with that, which is something I think a top director of football would have cautioned against. But because it went so well with Solskjaer, because of the sort of thing, because of how much he buys into the, the club mythos and all this, basically they entrusted him with most of the powers that the director of football would have. Whereas now, and suddenly we're in a situation where if they had a director of football, whatever about judging against being able to judge that you shouldn't base any long-term decisions off short-term runs as they did in early 2019, he, it would have been someone that was able to assess much before it got to this that Solskjaer probably wasn't up to it, as well as assess the manager market and see what they should be going for. And like so many problems are wrapped up in this. And you bring up Murta, but there's a fair question. Is, is he really going to make any sort of decisions of clout there? I don't think anyone really thinks that. Everyone still expects the major football decisions to be made by those well above kind of any sort of football director, which is you know, the two Glazers, Woodward and Arnold, and ultimately Joel Glazer. And it, and because of that, we come back to the issue of, really, it is protection for Solskjaer, both at a pundit level and a fan level, where I, I think because of his status, I think fans are absolutely right not to really criticise. And Crossy's completely right there. It is sad to see Solskjaer at this point. I mean, and you, there is almost an argument he made because it's got so bad and the job he loves so much, it would, it would be for the best for everyone to just end this, whatever about the club. But fans are obviously reluctant to criticise him. That means there isn't that really that greater pressure. And I think it's absolutely true that the cheers for Van de Beek on Saturday were almost like a, a proxy disapproval of everything that's happening because they they know they they don't want to criticize the manager and that's absolutely fair but it felt like being able to cheer van de beek was a venting for some of the feelings of frustration right now so on one level he's got most of the manchester united putting the class refusing to criticizing everything but him basically and talking around the issue on the other side you've got the fans reluctant to really criticize culture or call for change and that does make the, the glazer's decision that much easier really because ultimately it comes down to results and performances. And they're still, I mean, they've been atrocious lately. But the, the general position, even though I, I would say points to kind of wider decline, they're still only five points off top four. They're still in the Champions League. And for the moment, even though like the results against City and, and actually really the performances against City and Liverpool 
should have been absolute alarm bells. You can still look at that and say, okay, it's not that bad. But and it all just adds up to a situation where they kind of just st- stagger on right now because, again, there's no one with the football expertise to make the decision. I think that pretty much everyone else can see. Yeah, you don't have to look too hard, do you, John, to see the cumulative impact of, of what's going on. You know, the performances are are timid. You can see the players have got a, a lack of trust and confidence in the system. And individually, you know, look around. Wan-Bissaka, he was completely lost in self-doubt. Fernandez, absolutely consumed by frustration. For me, when De Gea went off at half-time screaming at the world, that to me was the biggest gauge of discontent. As you know, I go back to what we did right at the start. You can't continue that way, can you? Because basically it's an inevitable decline. It is, yeah. I felt so sorry for De Gea because De Gea made some sensational saves. And he's clearly a player who's worked so hard to get back to being considered one of the best in the world because his level dropped remarkably low, if if I'm honest, at a time when we thought, well, blimey, has he got a future, even at United, frankly? He'd lost his place in the team. He's worked really hard, you can tell, at his game. He made some super saves. Listen, he's got to be at fault on the, on the second goal. He has to be. You know, it's bad defending from from Guan Shaw, but basically, uh, De Gea at his absolute best and making the best saves stops that. But there's so many deficiencies in that squad. Why did they spend the whole summer pursuing Kieran Trippier? Well, it's because Wambasaka is a, is a, is an excellent blocking fullback and defensive fullback, tenacious, but his positional play still needs some work, frankly, particularly when, when you know, the balls are over the top or long diagonal balls. You can tell he just he's not got that natural defensive instinct. Well, why? Because he's been, you know, spent much of his sort of academy days as, as a winger. He's only really mm-hmm. one full, proper full season before he became a £50 million fullback. I mean, it's just astonishing, really. And they've got no one holding in midfield. I feel sorry for Eric Bai because I do, I do think at times he's just dropped in and said, go on then, rescue us. He plays brilliantly in midweek. And and yet, because he's so unsure of his position and his status at the club, I think he, d- he then does rash things. And I think there is a defender there. I do. But then Fernandez, Ronaldo, and this is not blaming Ronaldo, because you can have positives and negatives in any player. But basically, Ronaldo's emergence in the team has impacted upon Fernandez. It's just obvious because they play slightly different to accommodate Ronaldo. Well, you know, while Ronaldo is brilliantly effective, it has taken away from Fernandes. It feels like they went into the final days of the window, did that amazing Ronaldo coup, but didn't actually think about the other aspects of it and and how that team is going to work. And that's so damn typical of United and their structure or lack of it. They've basically got to build with a plan and sort of... I, I think that the... If you're a title-winning team and you are a regular in the top four, you effectively know what your best formation is and your best 11 is. And anything around that comes into it. And you can say that with Chelsea. You can say that with Liverpool. You know, there's so much structure. You can say that with Manchester City. Of course, they'll make changes, but you know where you're going. They have a plan. They have a pattern. What is United's pattern since the summer? They tried to sign Sancho. It's not really worked yet. Ronaldo then saved him so many times, becomes so important. But then where do you go after that? It's just 
Varane has made such a difference. But it's just like, what is United's best eleven? No one seems to know, and they don't seem to have a, have a plan or a structure, which is highlighted by the fact that they've gone back to, in recent times, a back three or back five in, in desperation states. And that's where United are, really, rudderless. Mm. Well, other clubs have been more ruthless, let's be honest there. Dean Smith, Miggs, sacked by Aston Villa, which you can say is probably the cruelest cut in many ways. You know, obviously, he's got the club in his bones, and he took them over, let's not forget, when they were 14th in the championship. I suppose in football it's a simply a case, isn't it, of, well, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, basically. And I, I do agree. I think of all the um, the moves in the last month, this feels like the one that makes the least sense. I think, I mean, I look at it from two perspectives, really. On the one hand, I, I, I think there's maybe a slight danger of Villa potentially getting themselves into an Everton situation where... They're quite obviously concerned with the status of club and where they want to be next, that they're making decisions too easy and they're in a perpetual cycle themselves of almost making decisions that are supposed to get them to the next level but perpetually undercut themselves. It's almost an impatience and a lack of deeper planning in contrast to a club like Leicester who have made that step. The flip side of that, I suppose, is that if Smith is replaced by a manager who works out, so say we have Maurizio Pochettino situation, at Southampton, all the way back in 2013, where there was so much criticism for the decision, and then Pochettino comes and blows everyone away. That is possible. But right now, it did just feel just an impatient decision, especially, I mean, it's what, it's only five games ago. We got Villa's first win in, in at Manchester United in years. And, and, like, and you, you can't escape the wider context either, that they've just sold a player who the team was so dependent on in Jack Grealish. And like I, I think it's even too early to say whether the players they brought in are even up to it. Because, I mean, a situation like that, as we've seen from so many similar circumstances where big players have been sold, it will take a bit of readjustment. It will leave alone the fact that some of the players have to adapt as well. So it does just see, of all the moves this week, it feels the hastiest. But the fact that Craig Shakespeare has gone as well suggests they maybe are something that may be close along the line in terms of a replacement. Now, although there have been a few names bandied about, none of those mentioned would relieve me with too much confidence that anyone's going to be a particular, that much of an upgrade on Smith. But 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 let's see. Yeah, the names sort of being mentioned, Stephen Gerrard, the uh, Danish manager. John, would you take Stephen Gerrard? You know, he is serving his managerial apprenticeship. Well, actually, you know, let's turn this question around. If you're Steven Gerrard, why don't you just continue your managerial apprenticeship at Rangers for another season or so, rather than being thrown straight into the uh, the goldfish bowl of the Premier League? Yeah, I think that's the more pertinent question. I think for Steven Gerrard, it's got to be the timing's right. While I have absolutely no doubt that he's on Villa's shortlist and one of the preferred candidates, if you like, I don't know that he would be ready to take the jump because he's done such a really good job at Rangers. He has. He's given them back belief and pride, led them to the title. He's built a team and a structure there that is based on yeah, a team which is set up on team ethic rather than sort of individual qualities, let's be honest. But it's really, you know, he's moulded it into something special there. He's got a good coaching team around him. That, that shouldn't be underestimated. Because to, to surround yourself with good people is actually 
one of the most obvious things, but sometimes one of the hardest things for, for managers because I think they want to sort of kind of bask in the glory. Well, he's happy to sort of, you know, share that glory, I think, and that's and that's quite a big thing for me. I just think that the timing isn't ideal because you, as a manager, even if you're on your way up, you might not get many of these opportunities, but the ideal timing to, to basically make a change is in the summer. So I do think it's more of a question of whether they'd be able to attract him or not. See other names linked, like the Danish boss. Obviously, Villa have got a uh, Danish sporting director and sort of the links there. So that's an obvious one. I think Ralph Hasnoodle has also been been linked. And again, it's a question of does he jump? I think probably you might do because Villa is, you know, massive, massive football club. Hasnoodle does a terrific job at Southampton, I think. But I think that it just strikes me that it does seem harsh on, on Smith. But it also strikes me as I think the hierarchy had some reservations from the second half of last season because the first half was phenomenal and they played brilliantly and they were they, they were terrific. And I just think there were some reservations. They decided to stick with the manager back into the hilt, although then they sell Jack Grealish, the talisman, the best player. Buendia hasn't been a great success yet. He still might be. But I just I do feel sorry for Dean Smith. I think he's done such a good job. This this one seems harsh to me. And that I can understand why Villa I can see why they've done it from the perspective of it just struck me in the summer that there were some reservations about Dean Smith, but they didn't want to do it. They're determined to give their man another chance. And I think they did the right thing by doing so. But I think after axing after eleven games and a five-game losing streak just seems a bit harsh to me. Mm. What's the right way to sack a manager, Migs? I'll sort of try and expand on that question. <laughs> you know, is it just basically let's get someone lined up, like like Middlesbrough have done in the Championship with Chris Wilder, and make a very very quick clean change? And incidentally, that seems to, to me a, a pretty good signing. Well, I, I suppose there's two ways of, of asking that. I mean, when, when you asked, I initially thought of the, uh, what's the correct way to do it emotionally, which is maybe not just after a win or, or whatever, or yeah. not, when it, not when it feels abrupt. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think really you've got to have your plan in store so there isn't any sort of break. The flip side to that argument is that there sometimes gets a point with some managers where the situation gets so bad, you just have to make a change no matter what. But of course, if, it, if you're at that point, really there should have been some sort of build-up because you don't just abruptly go so bad and you change. That actually happens over a period of time where hierarchies should be considering what next. And that's been one of the... You hear that from people around Manchester United, basically, that they were so invested... And Crossy touched on, on this at the top, but they were so invested in Solskjaer doing well that there's basically... The, the, the phrase I've heard so many times over the past few days is, there's no plan B. So they, And it leaves them in a situation where they're scrabbling around. Whereas... Some of these clubs at the bottom, basically all the clubs that have made changes, do seem a little clearer about what they want next. Middlesbrough in the Championship being the clearest example of all, they moved remarkably swiftly. But a lot, a lot of these other clubs seem a bit further on the process, with the exception being Newcastle. And I think you can get into similar questions there about how they're run from a football perspective, even if it is early days in this, in this ownership. But yeah, I, 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 from for me, I, I think you're right. I think, given the way modern football should be run, given the warnings that clubs would have, and given the way business is done, I mean, 
you know, no one operates under the illusion anymore that people don't make contingency plans out of the idea of class or anything like that because a manager is still in a job. Something should be lined up. Let's look at maybe the, the, the Norwich model, John, if we could. You know, that involves a lot of trust in the director of football to shape the club, in, you know, in this case, Stuart Webber. And Stuart looked beyond the temporary boost of that first win, and I think he surprised Daniel Farker by sacking him in the dressing room at Brentford. Harsh, but maybe understandable? Yeah, I, I thought it was understandable, if I'm honest. So I, I did the Norwich-Leeds game, and I found what, what Daniel Farker said after the game just remarkable. In the base, he had said, we can't compete in the Premier League at the moment. And I just think, if you are saying that, and the players listen to that, <laughs> where's the motivation? How are you going to turn it around? And yes, of course, they won at Brentford. But I, I just, if I'm a sort of a board, I'm going, well... If he doesn't believe it, how are we going to, you know, we've, you know, there's a common misconception, isn't there, that basically about Norwich, they're, they're just happy to be a yo-yo team and they've given up the ghost and they're a waste of time. Now, I actually think that's unfair on them because they spent close to £60 million in outlay on deals and loans. And yes, they sold Buendia in the summer, but that's not a club that's not giving it a go. You'd have to question the recruitment if the manager then doesn't play one of those eye-catching loan signs in Billy Gilmore. And is he getting the best out of the players? Well, I don't think he's getting the best out of the players if he's telling them he can't compete. So I just think that they've made that decision before the game. It's amazing to me that Daniel Farker, it came as such a surprise because these things normally get out and there's a few stories written last week. It struck me that going back to Neil Warnock and Chris Wilder, very briefly, that Neil Warnock was all over that. It felt to me as if what Neil Warnock said was, I knew I was getting sacked. And what is the best way to do to do a sacking? Is it in the corridor for a double-winning manager like Carlo Ancelotti? No. But is it in the dressing room after a game to allow the players and the team to enjoy and prepare their moment? Yeah, I don't I don't think that's too bad, actually. But I'll tell you one thing you can't get done, done for is being spotted as a chief executive or a chairman in a restaurant with the new manager. And so that's, you know, that's something you just cannot do. But I just feel as if Norwich has done a good job over, over a period of time and he just run out of inspiring words. And it felt to me that he'd, he'd sort of given up the ghost himself. And when that happens, the club has to make a change. I think he, in, in a way, signed his own death warrant with words like that after Leeds. But I was pleased that he went out on a high because I think he's... I think he's deserved it. I know Norwich are not everyone's cup of tea, but someone wrote at the weekend, you know, let's praise them for being a self-sustaining club who are sort of happy with their lot. No, let's not. They want to be competitive and stay in the Premier League. And and I think to do that, they had to make the change. And, and I think actually they were right to do it. Mm. It's a definitive decision in many ways, Migs, you know, according to the reports that you know, Frank Lampard has already been spoken to. You know, Weber has he's always gone on record as favouring the German coaching mentality. You know, he obviously appointed Farker and, and David Wagner when he was at Huddersfield. I'll throw one into the mix here. You know who I think is probably best suited to Norwich? Eddie Howe. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Although <laughs> the mischievous part of me almost thinks that 
the story of the season, now probably, he won't go back to the management, management immediately. The story of the season would be Bruce going back to the club he started his playing career, Norwich, and keeping <laughs> them up at the expense of Eddie Howe's Newcastle. You can, you can see things like that <laughs> aligning with the, way, with the way football goes. But it's obviously, I, I do agree. Yeah, I think Eddie Howe's football, it, it, just, it does just fit into what Norwich idealise. It, and it's also why, that, that, I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of German model there they've gone, but this would set off maybe a few alarm bells with me because, uh, look, yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say basically German football, or at least the principles of German football, currently dominate the top end. Don't, like it's, it's all kind of fast transitions and, and, and pressing. And that would, get, that would lend a certain logic to what Weber's been doing. But given how Lampard played at Chelsea, Lampard doesn't really... He doesn't operate that model. He, he, like his, 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 what he does in coaching has been quite different. In fact, what he does in coaching still feels a little bit difficult to pin down, but it does feel a bit of a, a deviation from that. So, I mean, that would that would for me pose more questions of Norwich, regardless of of Lampard as a coach. And I think you are right. I think Eddie Howe would fit into that better. But I suppose Norwich currently don't have the prospects. That Newcastle do, given they aren't theoretically as wealthy, so you can, I suppose, you can understand Howe's ambition there. The appointment, if if indeed it it goes through, John, has been a really drawn out process, hasn't it? <laughs> you know, do you share my mm. suspicion that the big decisions are routinely referred back to Riyadh and that sort of self protective bureaucratic Saudi system and? I don't see how that works in such an accelerated environment as modern football. Yeah, I listen, I do. I think that, I mean, I think some of the names banded about. I mean, it has been an exhaustive process, let's be honest here. Exhausting as well. Yes, absolutely. But they did say, and, you know, some of the well-informed North East writers, I thought, got it right in saying that Graham Jones will get three games, which took you up to the international break and it's indeed been the case, okay? So he's done all right, hasn't he? You know, he's sort of steadied the ship. It's not there. There are no further adrifts, like, you know, after the weekend. They're five points adrift, if you like, from safety, and it's been okay. And I think clearly some of the names mentioned along the way haven't clearly haven't been pursued by Newcastle. And then Unai Emery was the one that they really acted upon last week. And I thought some of the, <laughs> some of the sort of kind of fallout was, was ridiculous to, to, to suggest that kind of the leaks played a role in Emery turning it down. I mean, what leaks? I mean, you know, Miguel knows. We don't get phone calls, you know, every two minutes saying, oh, here's one for you. You know, <laughs> we're, we're basically, we're definitely in for Emery. That'll be signed, sealed and delivered sort of thing, really. You know, journalists still have to chase stories and use their sources and get the stories. I'm not convinced that Emery was the right fit anyway. He had some doubts along the way. If it didn't play out exactly how he wanted, then he's basically changed his mind, hasn't he? And then they pursued option number two because Eddie Howe was also in the, in the same interview process. And and actually, I thought some of the criticism was a bit weird because to su- suggest that, oh, they're polar opposites, you know, Emery over there and Howe over there. Well, I think it's probably good to have different candidates offering different things. Maybe that doesn't work in football. I don't know. But sometimes what you do in industry, isn't it? So I, I, ultimately, I think Eddie Howe, will prove to be a better option 
frankly. His biggest issue is time and the squad at his disposal and whether he can make make enough impact, I think. I think Newcastle in severe danger, even in, even with Eddie Howe. It's, it's all a bit of a unknown, isn't it? Yeah, but also, you know, you look at, you analyse that squad and certainly that team, Migs, it's a championship team, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, more, or at least one of those kind of strange teams that's in between the Premier League and Champions League, or sorry, Premier League and, and Championship. You know, I suppose there's been a lot of talk that Newcastle, before they get into any idea of ideology or what they want next, they need uh, just to survive. And on one level, you could point to Howe's record and say he brought Bournemouth up and kept them for five seasons. And that is, you couldn't have a better example of survival than that. But that's, um, it's different parameters, though, because ultimately that was, that Bournemouth team was one that Howe had come up with and nurtured with and, and was so attuned to that it all just fit together more naturally. Whereas we don't know how he's going to respond to being dropped into a team, like whatever about being dropped into the situation but being dropped into just a squad like this. So it, there's still huge questions about it. Now, he, he is a quality coach, How I think despite all the grand ambitions that people have talked about for Newcastle, if to be fair, in this case, not necessarily from the fans, I, I, I think it is a, is a good appointment for, for where they're at as a club. But as for where they're at as a situation, that's what we're going to have to wait and see. And it still does feel they're in, they're in some danger. Well, if you think about it in terms of stats, you know, Newcastle have started the season without winning any of their first 11 games. Only twice before in the Premier League has a club done that and survived relegation. Blackburn did it in 96-7 and Derby in 2000-2001. And, and, you know, both won their 12th game, by the way. So to your point, John, they are in real danger, aren't they? Oh, Absolutely. He did well to get a point at Brighton. Brighton started the season really well, but they're just a, on a run of draws at the moment, which has slightly left a few people a bit surprised, really, because you look at the table and think, wow, Brighton are doing well, but actually they're sort of on this little bit of a blip as far as they're concerned, and Newcastle took advantage, could have, could have possibly even won it. But I just feel as if, <laughs> funnily enough, Eddie Howe there sat in the stands with his assistant, Jason Tindall, He's looking at a, a squad that he's familiar with some of the players, Wilson, Fraser. He's just... Uh, I do think that there's... He probably looks at it and thinks, right, it's going to be very, very tight, but there's enough there to, to make me believe that I can do it. Who on earth would go there in January, by the way? I mean, that that's the mm. thing. I think there's this common misconception that they're going to go and break the bank in January and buy their way out of trouble. Well, you've got a bigger issue about finding the right sort of player with the right character to to actually go there, to go into a relegation battle, which ultimately might fail and you might go down. I do think it's it's pretty average squad, which has been left in decline, frankly. And there's a few couple of two or three good shining lights. But other than that, it's a pretty average squad. And I, I think that will go to... That'll go right to the wire. And frankly, if you look at it, who else is down there? That's the thing. You'd all sort of write off Norwich, wouldn't you? Surely Villa will turn that round. And then everyone was writing off Crystal Palace at the start of the season. Well, they're going great guns. Burnley, Sean Dyche again. Fantastic overachieving, you know, brilliant results. So who is the who is the bottom three? So someone someone's got to pay the price at some stage. And this season 
logic would tell you that might well be Newcastle. And whoever takes charge now, Eddie Howe, he's got a massive job, the job of his life in front of him to keep them up. Mm. I think it was eight of uh, Saturday's team played for Rafa Benitez, who is in um, new surroundings, let's put it like that, at Everton. We'll start, though, referring to... We'll, we'll refer to Everton a, a little later, but you know, that goalless draw against Spurs, Conte's first Premier League game, Miggs, what do you think his initial impact has been? A bit more intensity, but really quite a lot of familiar issues, especially up front? Yeah, basically, I suppose, I mean, the biggest impact is really just a sense that Spurs are doing something ambitious again. And I think from from speaking to kind of people close to players now, I mean, you can't really get away from this. There was just a sense of drift at the club and they were losing any position they had. Whereas the very appointment of Conte and the immediate impact of Conte as a manager just creates an electricity around the place again. Players are responding to it. Now, obviously, there's a bit more to do for the manager than get an immediate response in a game, a particularly awkward game, to be fair, away to Everton. So I think that will come in time. But but yeah, that, that that's the biggest impact so far. It wouldn't necessarily concern me what happened on Sunday just because it was the first Premier League game. But it did point to issues that Conte has to sort, has to sort out, particularly a kind of a, a, a real just drabness in attack. Yeah. Where do you think Conte's priorities will lie, John? You know, obviously he's got a, he's got a, a chance to work on the training ground with the rump of his squad this next couple of weeks. He's spoken up about Deli Ali. He says, you know, could he, in essence, he's challenging him to revive his career. Will there be any changes, do you think, after this break? <laughs> I think he's got to make a few players work. So I think that there's, there's very obvious frailties in, in the squad. If he wants to play a back three, and clearly he does, that's his preferred system, isn't it? His preferred modus operandi. And basically, he, he's got to look at the right-back situation. Emerson Royale, I just, that strikes me as a bit of a desperation transfer deadline signing, that is. Maybe Matt Doherty, who came on. I don't know. Matt Doherty was so good at Wolves for a stage, playing at, at, at wing-back. Those are the sort of things that he could sort of kind of maybe get and revive if you want to kind of get down to it and sort of say, well, where can I, where can I sort of kind of get something that's unexpected, if you see what I mean. Reggion's such a good player over on the other side. And I think Romero's a good player. And midfield, central midfield, key issue. You've really got to have a structure there if that's going to work, if that's going to be your platform in front of the back three to feed the attack to make it work and to really kind of be fruitful. And I just, Hoiberg, for me, at his worst, he's very one-dimensional. He's a destroyer. I think Skip is having a really promising season. There's lots of potential there, but get Winks back. Winks is good on the ball. I know Spurs fans have slightly turned and, you know, sort of suggesting maybe it's the right time for a change. I don't see that because I think the first priority for a manager surely has got to be to improve what you've got. And whether that's Deli Alley, who has not worked for the last two managers, but why not? If there's one manager who can get players focused and get them going again, then I think it's Conte. I really do. It'll be so interesting now for Harry Kane to see whether he can turn his fortunes around this season if he's get his confidence and belief back. There were good flashes in from what I saw from Goodison. And I think there's lots in there to do, Trey. But why I think Conte was such a surprise in taking this job is not 
necessarily because of, of Tottenham and the size of the club, because it is a club with a sensational stadium, so much potential. It reached the Champions League final a couple of years ago. It's the state of the squad. This is a world-class manager who, who, who demands so much. But having said all that, this is the manager who won the Premier League title with Victor Moses as a key man in the team. You know, so he's a miracle worker, frankly. I love the guy. I think he's so impressive and I think he'll get the best out of the players that he has. But he'll really need to work and do and go some and then do some business in January to, to get Tottenham pushing for the top four in my seat, in my view this season. Mm. Yeah, the, the problem is for managers coming in, Migs, is that the squads they inherit are usually sort of patchwork quilts of ideas from previous directors of football or other managers. And I mentioned that in to try and put into context the, the challenge facing Rafa Benitez at Everton. A mutual friend of ours, Ian Ross, who obviously used to work for Everton, uh, he, he posted a list of players the other day and posed the question about whether Benitez could be blamed for poor recruitment of other people. I'll just quote you this list because it actually made me think Umar Nias, thirteen and a half million. Funes Moro, nine and a half million. Adamola Lukman, seven point five million. Yannick Balassi, twenty five million. Ashley Williams, twelve million. Tosin, twenty seven million. Walcott, twenty million. Schneiderlin, twenty four million. Vlasic, ten million. Lewis Gibson, six million. Henry Onyekru, 7 million. Sandro, 5.2 million. Michael Keane, 25 million. David Klassen, 23.6 million. Moisey Keane, 27.5 million. Richarlison, 35 million. Yerry Mina, 27.9 million. I haven't even bothered to add that lot up. <laughs> but it does make the point, doesn't it? It's remarkable. It also points out like it's the weird purgatory Everton are in where they have a lot of money, but they don't have money to get the real top class guarantees of quality and to break into that top six. I suppose, I, I mean, ideally, ultimately, that top four. There's, there's some way off that. And yeah, I mean, it does mean that any manager is wrestling with that. And almost means the ideal manager for, for for the club is someone that can come in and one of these coaches that finds a fit to whatever he's dealt with, to whatever he's dealt with, and doesn't need to make so many signings. Whether Rafa has been in that mold is a is a bigger debate. It does feel actually. I mean, Ra, Ra, uh, Benitez made initially quite a decent start. It does feel that maybe he's lost, and, and and some of his own signings suddenly had a huge upturn. And there was the former Vandross Townsend earlier in the season, but it does feel like he's lost. A little bit of momentum now that's that's you know created more questions, maybe brought some of the lingering emotional issues given his his Liverpool past, which is one reason why this job is there's all that's always going to be there basically unless he has some sort of outstanding success, and it's always going to be something that that causes doubt or or tension at any time or where where they drop off. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Everton's first problem really has been, I mean, it's almost like they, whatever about the manager, they, they, they long ago, and which makes it all the more pressing question now, they have to decide what they want to be as a club, 
what the model's going to be, what they're going to be going forward. And I, that, that would at least give them the direction and ideology that would mean they, it isn't just this kind of, this patchwork of players or suddenly whatever, whoever the next available biggish name or kind of someone that looks like he might do something is brought in because that's what they have to get away from. What about Arsenal, John? They were, you know, lest we forget, bottom going into the first break of the season. Now they're fifth, unbeaten run. What about Arteta's development in his 100 games in charge, which actually you know, included 54 wins in that, in that time? Yeah, funny start. Brilliant high with the FA Cup. Terrible lows, flirtation with relegation. Shocking start to the campaign. <laughs> and now out the other side. I mean, you know, it is quite interesting. Someone was, I think it was Alison Rudd sometimes with this parish, you know, I think they're basically making the point in a week where clubs have lost patience and, and sort of shown the door to managers. Well, fair play to Arsenal for sticking with Arteta because I do think there's probably been times when it's felt intolerable, insufferable for them to stick with. And I don't know, it's... I, I still think he's a developing coach and the signs are good. So I did two games in, in a short space of time. Crystal Palace on the Monday when they were so poor and they could have lost that game, frankly. And then on the Friday night, they blitzed Aston Villa. And yes, Aston Villa weren't very good. But that, in particularly in the first half, was everything good about an Arteta team and what he wants from the team. So really hard-working, dynamic, moving forward, good team pattern, you know, well-organised, defensively strong and solid. And, and, and frankly, I do think he's been backed by the club. The club has sort of kind of held firm and they spent close to £160 million in the summer. And a lot of people were questioning signings. I don't know why fans worry so much about the price tags. Because ultimately, a player is worth what he's worth. Ben White has been a star in the, in the last month or so, bringing the ball out with confidence. And he's been this huge feature of Arsenal's play. He's involved, again, sort of in, in everything good, bringing it out. And I think Ramsdale has, has surprised me. But the negativity sometimes must be suffocating, you know, when you're a player coming in or a player trying to sort of survive that. I mean, he's just been sensational. He's proved absolutely everybody wrong. And... That's played into it, but I do think that Arteta is potentially a really good manager, but I still think we're talking about potential because I think that when he's under the cosh, when he is struggling a bit, he can come across quite badly. He's got to find that middle ground of humility and not not appear arrogant, not appear, appear aloof, not just to sort of probably in public but also, you know, or to the fans, but also, I guess, to the players. And I think he's now found the right balance and the right dressing room dynamic. And so they are, it feels like they're in a good place on the up and it's a good unbeaten run. So it feels that they are making good strides under him, but I do still feel it's, it's a process. And if they end up finishing seventh or eighth when they have a blip, I think this, these last few weeks has told us that, that basically they should stick with the plan, basically. It's a young team, young developing team, which will go through some difficult moments but should come should be given the opportunity to come out the other side and push for a top four place maybe next season if it's if it's off the table this season if we're talking about you know a triumph of, of coaching and persistence and resilience we're looking at David Moyes third now having beaten Liverpool 
lest we forget again, they were a point off relegation when Moyes arrived at the end of December in 2019. Watching that win yesterday, Migs, you know, they're not particularly sophisticated or complicated. You know, there's a great work ethic. They're brilliant at set pieces. It just shows you what a good manager can do. Yeah, and a resurgent manager. Let's not forget. I mean, I don't. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that uh, Moyes was basically done at that sort of level by the time West Ham appointed him the second time. Uh, obviously, there was what happened at Manchester United, and like, yeah, he, he's spoken about this recently. To be fair, where all the both will be, he went into Manchester United. Whatever about whether whether he was ever good enough for the job, taking over from Ferguson was obviously it, it was just too big, too big a gig. Then he went, he went to Real Sociedad. It seemed appealing, but there was just too much to work out. And by that point, it felt like he was kind of just on one of those long declines. Sunderland at that point was a basket case. So it's to his credit he's brought things around. It's actually a revival, I think, that's quite rare at this point in football history with managers. And what's all the more interesting is that he's done it by kind of reviving some of the qualities that made his Everton team so good or initially made his name, really which is basically a very solid base and one that's hugely difficult to break down. But on top of that, as you say, it's not the most kind of progressive modern system, but it is a team that basically knows all the right moments when to attack. I think that's been one of the particularly interesting thing about West Ham, which is just how they hurt teams. And, and okay, the most prominent in the game against Liverpool was set pieces, which remained such a hugely valuable weapon. But there was so much more to it than that. In fact, so yesterday, I was on a day off yesterday because I've been at Manchester United on Saturday. <laughs> I was uh, just delving into my, my dull Sunday, was disassembling a flat pack uh, <laughs> chest of drawers in, but with the TV out of the background. And it felt like, but it felt like every time I looked up, there was a two-on-two, West Ham attacking Liverpool. And that's something we've seen in a lot of their games, actually. And it's almost like they, they're, they're willing to invite teams on because they know they've got the platform and then really cut through them. Well, what is quite an exciting attack? Mm. You were there. You were there, John. It struck me just watching it on TV was that that, and and people I think mentioned it afterwards. It's it it had the feel of the old Upton Park. There's a real sense of understandable excitement there, isn't there? There is. Yeah, yeah. It's enough to get you so carried away that you're putting the back panel on the front panel of a flat pack chest of drawers. It really is. Really. <laughs> so I'd love to. I'd love to see. I'd love to see the outcome of that, Miguel. But um, but look, I, 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 the best atmosphere that I've experienced at the London Stadium, I thought up until yesterday, was on the Monday night when West Ham beat Leicester. It was. The, it was the best atmosphere since Super Saturday in the Olympics. Because let's be honest here, the fans haven't embraced it. And yesterday topped that by a million miles, topped the Leicester game. And it was sensational, the atmosphere. And why is that happening? It's because the fans want like the football again. They like what they're seeing on the pitch. David Moyes admitted it, that they played to their strengths. Jurgen Klopp said afterwards, West Ham have played some super stuff recently, but this wasn't it, basically. They played, you know, sitting deep, playing on the counter, and then basically played set pieces. And he's right. But actually, that's a great quality. If you go out all guns blazing against Liverpool, they can blitz you 5-0 because that's what they did to Man United. So you you wouldn't be that naive. And so basically they play a different way. And the fans have bought into it. And ultimately it tells you, yes, they didn't want to leave their spiritual home, but ultimately it's all about results, isn't it? 
that is dictating david moyes has done an incredible job you see the spirit within the dressing room he's got a hold of that i think everyone can see that the squad is going to be stretched this season it's going to be a big ask but actually where some teams make wholesale changes on a Thursday night and then expect the momentum to instantly kick back in on a Sunday. He doesn't do that. He makes two or three. So he keeps the rhythm and he keeps the same names and he keeps the balance of the side. And they and they love it. And the players buy into it. And it's it's a set way of playing. And it's really good. And, and everyone buys into it. I had some sympathy with Liverpool yesterday because I thought Jurgen Klopp spoke a lot of sense. I thought it was a red card from Cresswell. I, I couldn't quite understand that. I think the first goal should have stood. But where I have sympathy with with Klopp is that once Pawson takes the decision, he clearly did, I don't want to get involved here. I'll leave it to the VAR. Well, the, the VAR has then instantly got a higher bar because it's got to be a clear and obvious mistake. Well, if you're judging it for what it is, Klopp will probably feel, well, it is a foul. I didn't think it was a foul. Let's be clear here. But... That's the that's the that's the stupid thing about the VAR. You've got a higher bar. It's just wrong. But ultimately, Klopp was quite gracious, you know, in saying that yeah, I, I don't feel we deserve to lose. There were some bad decisions, but West Ham did really well. And I think it's quite. I thought that was quite a sportsmanship and quite gracious from Klopp to lose that incredible unbeaten run, I should say, and still have praise. And that's the that's the respect that Moyes has got from other managers and that for the job that he's doing at West Ham. Well, we've spoken a lot today about job security or people losing their jobs. Football's a people business and it sometimes treats people badly. Now, sure, there will be criticism of individuals. And, you know, from our point of view, that sometimes involves commenting on their suitability to do the job. That's possible without resorting to the sort of abuse that led Tony Pulis, for one, to to voice his fear that a football manager could be physically assaulted if the culture of abuse continues. We've obviously concentrated on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for a number of weeks. He fronts up in his interviews, he tries to say all the right things, but look at his eyes. They're tired, forlorn. They're the eyes of a beaten man. Sometimes you've got to make a decision for an individual's well-being. I think United's absentee owners are just standing back and letting a good person fall apart bit by bit. Now, that can't be right. What do you think? Well, as usual, thanks to John and Miguel for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.